This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Werner Herzog, is a writer and director who makes films about extremes, extreme personalities, predicaments, and places. He's made two films in the Amazon jungle, Aguirre, The Wrath of God, about a mad conquistador in the 16th century, and Fitzcarraldo, about a European opera lover in Peru, obsessed with bringing opera to the Amazon, but in order to do it, he needs to get a steamship over a mountain to get to the river. The actor who starred as a madman in both films was Klaus Kinski, who Herzog describes as a madman. Kinski also starred in Herzog's version of Nosferatu. Herzog's documentary Grizzly Man is about a man who lived in Alaska among grizzly bears, thinking he was protecting them, until one ate him and his girlfriend. The list of films about and shot in extreme circumstances is a lot longer. Herzog grew up in extreme circumstances. He was born in Munich during World War II, After Allied bombs were dropped, decimating nearby homes, his mother found him in his crib covered with shattered glass and debris. He was uninjured, but his mother took him and his brother to an extremely remote part of Bavaria in the mountains, where they lived a life of poverty. Over the years, he survived many injuries sustained while ski jumping and while making films. Some members of his casts and crews have suffered illness and injury, too. Even people who don't know Herzog's films know him for his sinister portrayals in Jack Reacher, The Mandalorian, and The Simpsons. Werner Herzog now lives in L.A. and Munich. He's written a new memoir called Every Man for Himself and God Against All, which is also the subtitle of his film, The Enigma of Caspar Hauser. Werner Herzog, welcome back to Fresh Air. Uh, Thank you for having me again. Oh, it is always my pleasure. Do you know why you're attracted to extremes in your life and in your films? I don't see it that much as extremes. You see, when you move a ship over a mountain, it is doable. And I knew it was doable, although quite hard. But um, I think it is a, it is such a big metaphor. Like um, in literature, you have it, uh, for example, the white whale, uh, Moby Dick, and the hunt for it, or... Don Quixote attacking the windmills with his lance. So there are big metaphors, a big vision out there, and then it doesn't matter if it's becoming difficult or not. And, of course, um, I disagree a little bit about uh, what you said about risking things. Yes, I have risked personally things. I test the problems and the obstacles and the dangers. But in 80 or so films, not a single actor was ever injured, not one. So it's my proof that I must be circumspect, that I must be careful. Uh, Of course, sometimes crew members were hurt, uh, but uh, they would volunteer, even push me, for example, let's go through the rapids with a ship, and it's a big one, I mean 320 tons. And if it crashes into the rocks, it has uh, a momentum and a kinetic energy that's enormous. And, and of course, uh, almost everyone who was on board for filming, and they pushed me, let's go on board and let's film this. Um, almost everyone was, was injured. Uh, but uh, 
that does happen and it's a risk that we uh, that we knew and we accepted it. But my question still stands. Why do you think you're attracted to making films that put you in risky situations and that put you in extreme situations? It's one thing to have in the film a metaphor like dragging a ship over a mountain, but it's another thing to actually have to do it in your film. <laughs> you know, at, at that point, it's not a metaphor. At that point, it's something your crew has to do. I hear you, yes. But um, I'm not searching for finding my boundaries or some. The extreme mountain climbers do that. That's not my thing. I, I know my boundaries and I accept them and I take no as an answer, for example. And I'm a professional person, I'm a filmmaker, and I want to come back with a film and I want to come back alive because I want to edit the film and I want to show it to audiences. So, for example, at the edge of a volcano, yes, uh, there were certain dangers and there was an eruption and glowing... Uh, Uh, slabs or blobs of, of lava came down on us, raining down, and some of them very large. I mean, the size of a the size of a car, the size even of a truck. So you better flee quickly. You get out of it. Uh, but I'm not searching the dangers. Uh, the The nature of my storytelling sometimes requires to go into extreme situations. Yes, but. I think um, to look deep into our human nature, to look deep into the darkest recesses of our soul or the hidden things deep in our soul, you have to put uh, human beings uh, at some sort of an edge. You grew up in extreme circumstances during World War II in Munich and then in remote part of Bavaria in the mountains where you were poor. Um, and there was one time where your mother, when you were living in Bavaria during the war, took you and your brother up a slope to get a better view of Rosenheim, a city in Bavaria that had been bombed and was on fire. And you describe it as a vast inferno tracing the terrible pulse of the end of the world on the night sky. I knew that outside of our tight valley, there was a whole world that was dangerous and spectral. Not that I was afraid of it. I was curious to know it. A lot of people would have been afraid of it. Why were you more curious to know it? Well, I was too young. Uh, you see, number one, when my mother fled Munich, I was only two weeks old, 14 days old, when there was carpet bombing on Munich. Of course, there's no memory anything. The childhood was very, very closed and very beautiful, but when I was two and a half, and it's my very first memory, my mother uh, wakes us up abruptly in the middle of the night. It must have been April uh, 1945. And she says, you have to see it, boys, wraps us in blankets, rushes up on a slope, and at the end of the valley, uh, the entire sky was red and orange, but not flickering because it, Rosenheim is 40 miles away. So the entire sky is pulsing slowly red and orange. And uh, that somehow is embedded in my memory forever. And of course, I knew all of a sudden there's something out there. There's a world out there. There's war out there. There's a conflagration out there. And I became 
curious. Uh, and it's strange because my two brothers who grew up with me did not move out and were that uh, curious. They were very successful in their professions, but not like me. I was I was uh, one who would move to Antarctica or to the jungle or to the Sahara Desert to, to do my work. So when you were young, you got into a fight with your older brother and you stabbed him in the wrist and the thigh. There was blood all over. And you write that you realized you, you urgently needed some self-discipline. What did you do to acquire that self-discipline? It was from one moment to the next. I knew uh, that uh, something like that uh, uh, cannot happen again. And uh, that's how a character is being formed, defeats, catastrophes that I created. Um, and, of course, uh, that shaped my character. And from one moment to the next, I knew you have to control uh, what what is wild in you. You have to be disciplined. And until today, uh, 90% of what you see when you meet me is discipline. People think, yeah, I'm the wild guy out there. And so, no, it's, I'm, I'm a disciplined professional. And uh, at that time, family, of course, was important because we grew up with our mother who raised us. We were three brothers and one mother. We lived in one single room in a sort of um, a pension, we called it. It's a boarding boarding house. And, um, and of course, we had clashes like brothers would have. And until today, it's mysterious to, uh, to foreigners. Uh, not long ago, a few years ago, I visited my older brother in Spain, where he had built himself a big a big house and he had a wonderful sailing boat. And we were at a fish restaurant and he, I studied the menu and he put his arm around my shoulder and all of a sudden I, I feel some stinging thing in my back and I smell smoke and I realize he has set my shirt on fire with his cigarette lighter. <laughs> and... And we laughed so hard, and everybody around on the table was appalled. But sometimes that's how brothers sometimes function, and I love him dearly, and and we do mischievous things to each other. It, it does happen, and it's not that serious. You see, somebody gave me his T-shirt, and we, we cooled my back with a, a few glasses of Prosecco. And that was that. That strikes me as slightly less than hilarious and kind of dangerous. <laughs> it, no, it was hilarious. I mean, come on, uh, a shirt doesn't really burn. I mean, it uh, it glows and glimmers a little bit. But uh, that was his joke. You know, you talk about wanting to see the dark recesses of the soul, but you also write when it comes to your soul that you'd rather die than go to an analyst because it's your view that something fundamentally wrong happens there. And you, you say it's a mistake to light up your soul, shadows and darkness and all. Why do you not want to light up your own soul, but want to explore the dark recesses of other people's souls? Well, that's my profession. Uh, that's my profession as a poet. And you look deep into who we are and you describe it. But... Um, you shouldn't make the mistake to believe that memoirs are confessional. 
I'm not into that business and I never liked too deep introspection. There's enough in, in my memoirs. There's enough introspection. There's no doubt it's in there, but to a certain limit. And uh, I do not want to step beyond uh, uh, a, a certain threshold. Uh, it It is not healthy if you circle too much around your own navel. And it is not uh, good to um, recall all the traumata of your childhood. It's good to forget them. It's good to bury them. Not in all cases, but in most cases. So and, uh, psychoanalysis uh, is doing that. I do not deny that it is that it is good and necessary in a very few cases. Yes, I admit it, but it's not my thing. And I keep telling men, so you see, rather rather dead than going to a psychiatrist, but at the same time, uh, rather dead than ever wearing a toupee. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> you see, my hair is thinning, <laughs> and I just accept it as it is. So nothing, rather dead, yeah. It's nice to know you have your values straight. And women women would immediately, would immediately agree with me. You can't, you cannot live with a man who starts to <laughs> to wear a toupee and thinks he, 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 is, he is handsome now and rejuvenated. Are you afraid of what you'd see if you shone a light on your soul? Uh, no, no. I, I know who I am and I know where I come from. And I know where I'm heading to, uh, toward. Um, no, no fear and, and no regrets. Sure, I made massive mistakes and I'm, uh, in a way, a result of my own defeats. So be it. They formed me. They made me... Um, they made me uh, thinking uh, beyond what I normally thought before. One of the films that made you famous is Aguirre, The Wrath of God. And this is a film about a conquistador leading a Spanish expedition in South America, searching for El Dorado, the, the city of gold. And he goes mad along the way. He calls himself the wrath of God. What interests you about a mind that makes you want to to write about it, or, or you know? Yeah. Uh, well, there are um, somehow touching a chord that's in us. Something, something mad or borderline mad. Something of uh, of power and dementia and uh, madness. Uh, and through such figures, all of a sudden, we we have it spelled out. We can feel it. We can touch it. We can read it and sense it and start to compare it. Where I am standing, how mad am I myself? Do you feel like you are mad? No, no. I'm the only one in the entire profession who is clinically sane. <laughs> Explain that. Oh, come on. Uh, I wouldn't have made uh, some 80 films without having uh, my wits together and my sanity and my professionalism. I'm the only one, when you look at the craze of Hollywood and all these uh, red carpet events and the statements at the red carpet, which are all performative. It's all performative 
borderline insanity in a way or, or saccharine uh, pink sort of uh, vanilla ice cream emotions uh, I'm the only one who is sane the only one All right, I'm definitely taking your word for it. <laughs> Please make sure. <laughs> And you can read it. Every single line in my uh, in my memoirs shows you that I'm that I'm absolutely sane in an ocean of of craze. Aguirre is about a Spanish conquistador who goes mad. And you can argue that Fitzcarraldo is a little mad too. And the actor who you got to play both of them is Klaus Kinski, who you describe as a madman. And you knew him since you were 13 and he was 36. And, and you were living in the same boarding house. And, and you knew he'd go into rages. You'd witnessed his rages. Um, was it, did it seem like a good idea to you to have somebody who seemed mad play madmen? I mean, or, or was it just your confidence in him as, a, as an actor? We have to be careful. I I said it. Yes, he he was mad or, or in in moments of paranoia, but he had uh, splendid moments of friendship and warmth and insight. So he was had quite a few facets. And of course, since I lived in the same boarding house with him, uh, directly with him, and saw the the tornado laying waste to the entire apartment. So I knew what was coming at me when some nine or ten years later I invited him to play the leading part uh, in Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Um, I knew it was going to be difficult, but I said to me, so what? The real task now is, uh, since he's such an incredible actor, since he has such a presence and dynamic and authority on the screen, I have to domesticate the wild beast somehow. All his uh, crazy attitudes should not explode outside of the screen during a dinner or after dinner where he opens fire at a hut full of uh, extras. It shouldn't happen. It should be all somehow organized for the screen itself. And I think that that was my achievement. Outside of him actually firing into the tent, you know, <laughs> into the hut, which which happened. Um, so I guess you were partially successful with that? No, not partially successful. I was con successful because I made five films with him. And, uh, and they all, um, when you look at them and forget about Kinski and forget about his private crazed personality and his egomania, forget about all this. There are five films out there that have something that you normally do not see in a movie. A, a presence and an intensity of a leading character that's unprecedented. I have only a few precedents are there, like the young Marlon Brando, for for example. And no matter how difficult it was to, to tame him, to domesticate the beast, uh, uh, it doesn't matter. The only thing... The only, only thing that counts. What do you see on a screen? Well, you can't argue that his presence isn't remarkable on screen. Um, I mean, you can't take your eyes off of him. But there is that thing that one person had part of his finger shot off when Kinski fired into the bamboo hut. So, I mean, that matters too. I, I mean, I understand that what really matters to you as a filmmaker is what you see on screen, 
but there was some collateral damage. Yes, but um, that was the most serious thing that ever happened. And of course, it is serious. And um, you have to, to cope with it. And um, and I threatened Kinski. Uh, I was actually there, wild rumors about it that I had a gun in my hands. And so that's not true. But I threatened him uh, and he understood uh, this was not, not a joke anymore. And he had to... Uh, be disciplined from from now on, and through all the other films I made with him, never anything of this uh, magnitude ever happened. Let's take a break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is filmmaker Werner Herzog. His new memoir is called "Every Man for Himself and God Against All." We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The 2023 MacArthur Genius Grants were just announced, and while none of us at Fresh Air were selected, a recent Fresh Air guest was. That attitude, that belief system about human beings is what allowed for the exploitation of black labor, the moving out of indigenous people, you know, all of those sorts of things. So it's not as though like the South is better or more racist, but it is in some ways an origin point for the way the whole nation operates. We revisit our conversation with author, historian, professor, and MacArthur genius, Amani Perry. That's exclusively on Fresh Air Plus. Listen for yourself by becoming a member at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to my interview with writer and filmmaker Werner Herzog. He makes movies about extremes, extreme personalities, situations, and places. His films, The Gear, The Wrath of God, and Fitzcarraldo, were both set and filmed in the Amazon jungle. Rescue Dawn is about an American fighter pilot who was shot down over Laos and managed to survive. His documentaries include Encounters at the End of the World, shot in Antarctica, and Grizzly Man, about a man who lives among grizzly bears in Alaska, thinking he's protecting them until he's killed and eaten by a grizzly. You grew up Well, your very early years were during World War II, and then you grew up in the aftermath. Your father was a Nazi, and he fought in the war, but he was mostly like in the supply room, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And your mother was briefly a National Socialist. Did they talk with you ever about Nazism? 
Um, we didn't talk that much. My mother, it was obvious, she was very early on uh, embarrassed about uh, being having been misguided and uh, uh, and she practically, of course, she had to to raise all alone three children. There was no money. My father never paid anything to support us, and um, she uh, she became a completely different person. Um, and and of course, it was always lingering out there. And of course, I was fascinated by uh, what happened to Germany. How. Is it possible that within a few years such a cultured nation lapses into, transforms into a world of barbarism? Well, even your father, your father was from an academic family. I mean, he was from a very educated family. He was an academic himself. So you must have wondered the same about your father. How could somebody who was educated from a very educated family? Yes, and it happened to many other educated families. There was no one spared. I mean, Germany was um, almost 100% Nazi. The dissidents, yes, they were out there, but they ended up in, in concentration camps very quickly. You know, your mother took you to Bavaria in the mountains to escape the bombing, but in retrospect, she also escaped the Nazis. She escaped her own country, I mean, her own people. Um, in a way, yes, but of course, in this village, there were also Nazis. And, oh, and sure, uh, I hadn't thought of that. Did yes, you know there that? there were also Nazis. Well, much later, it took some time, I thought. I didn't even know what Germany was. It was the valley where, where we grew up, in this remote place, and the waterfall in the gorge behind the house. That was our world. And, of course, a daily struggle. We had no running water. You had to go to the well with a bucket. We didn't have any running water in the house, so uh, my my shower was the ice-cold water of the waterfall deep in the gorge and uh, and hardly any electricity. I didn't know of the existence of cinema until I was 11. I think the first time I noticed that there was something like Germany, uh, I must have been seven or eight years old. For me, the world was around me, and that was it. And of course, I started to question, and I started to um, understand how does chaos and barbarism um, invade a a fairly organized uh, country. And that's why I wanted to go to the chaos of Eastern Congo after its independence, which I never reached, and I probably wouldn't have survived it. Your parents had to undergo denazification after the war. Yes. Did they ever tell you what that entailed? Uh, my mother, my father was always outside of my life. I hardly knew him. Your, your father you hardly knew. Did your mother tell you? Yes, uh, but not very much. It was fairly laconic, and she said, uh, um, look at me, uh, that's me now. And uh, I did a very, very... A severe mistake in my life, and my character had to readjust. I'm a different person. I think differently now, and um, so I, I accepted it. Um, and for example, she was never a racist, never deep into Nazi ideology at all. 
How do you think uh, growing up during the war affected you, even though you were at a remove from it in the mountains? Um, in, in the war and, and its aftermath. Uh, it is more the aftermath and um, and the restrictions. Or, for example, I noticed uh, that we were hungry. That was the only thing that was really hard hard to take. Otherwise, that we lived in in very deep poverty. I didn't notice. It was a normal thing, and everyone around us was was impoverished, and um, so it it was it was nothing really special. Only much later I, I understood what poverty meant, but that I had gone through it never affected me. Although you say that, I'm wondering if you're thinking at all about the children in Israel and in Gaza, um, like children in Israel were kidnapped, there's been missile attacks, children in Gaza have getting bombed, many children have been killed. I'm, I'm wondering if you're thinking about that a lot now. It's... Yes, you you have somebody uh, talking to you who grew up in a war. Uh, I, we were bombed out. There were there was a foot of glass shard and bricks and debris on my cradle when I was uh, fourteen days old. So um, I, I and then of course I grew up in in post in a post war time, uh, starvation, um, uh, poverty, and. Since I had this experience, for me it's obvious uh, that there shouldn't be any war. I'm against any war at all. And, and of course, it is terrible what we are witnessing now. It is terrible. It is terrible. And it shouldn't be. And I hope it will come to a, to a, to a quick end. But um, what, can I, what can I do? I, I cannot fight... Uh, as a volunteer in this war. Well, would you if you could? It sounds like you're against war and wouldn't want to participate in one. You know, why I would participate if in Germany all of a sudden neo-Nazis um, started a rebellion, an armed rebellion, a coup d'etat. You would know who would be first one to rush back and pick up a weapon. It would be me. I would fight. Because? Because uh, something like uh, times of the barbarism of the Nazis must not repeat itself. You see, as long as there is breath in me, I would fight. I understand that. Um. And of course, uh, having caused, having created the Holocaust, Germany has a specific attention to Israel. There's no doubt, uh, but we also now, uh, since it will it will be terrible what's coming, we also have to look after after all the casualties on on both sides. We need to take another short break here, so let me reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, my guest is writer and filmmaker Werner Herzog. His new memoir is called Every Man for Himself and God Against All. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Be My Guest with Ina Garten, a podcast from Food Network. Intimate and captivating conversations with new and old friends. Jennifer Garner, Frank Bruni, Emily Mortimer, and more. Listen to Be My Guest wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The first time you narrated a film was when you made a film for a production company in Germany that specialized in extreme subjects. And and you did a film for them about um, ski jumping, which you knew a lot about having grown up in the mountains in Bavaria. And you used to, like, build, um, God, what are they called, like, platforms to jump off, to ski off? Yeah, of? ramps. Yeah. Ramps, yes. And, and got yeah. terribly injured during one of those. And a friend of yours got terribly injured on one of his jumps. But anyway, so you, you, you made um, a documentary about that. And they told you, you have to narrate it because that's what everybody does. They narrate their own films. And you've been become famous for your narrations in films, in your documentaries. And you've had um, some movie roles, including uh, in Jack Reacher, in um, The Mandalorian, which is like a Star Wars spinoff, parroting yourself on, on The Simpsons. And they're all like sinister roles. What do you think it is about your voice that gets you cast in sinister roles? Maybe it's the content of what you're saying. Yes, the content, of course. Uh, and um, since then, I narrated my own um, my own writings, my own commentaries, and I had found my voice. But it's a stylized voice. When I'm talking to you, I'm talking like me. In commentaries, there's a certain stylization, a certain performance in it, a certain hypnotic uh, voice in it. Uh, I, I can't describe it easily and um, it uh, has caught on. Audiences love it. So uh, I do it for them as well. I do films for audiences. I write my book for readers. So I'm enjoying it and uh, I have been good in parts, in roles where I have to play the badass bad guy like in Jack Reacher, or where, for example, in a film by Harmony Corinne, which is called Julian Donkey Boy, I play a hostile father who harasses his dysfunctional family, uh, and, and I'm good at that. It's, but it's all performance. Don't believe, don't ever believe <laughs> I'm like that as a private person. That's good to know. <laughs> Can you quote yeah. any of the lines? Um, no, not really. But, you know, when Jack Reacher was released, it was released in France as well. My wife immediately gets uh, frantic calls from her girlfriend in Paris. And she says, Lena, are you really married to that man? <laughs> uh, we can give you shelter. You can, If you need to <laughs> flee, we are only an overnight flight away. And Lena laughed so hard and told me about it. And of course, she will testify that I'm a, uh, that I'm a mild-mannered, fluffy husband. She came up with that. And, and I... I I live with her happily now since 28 years. She she will give you uh, the right testimony. Good. <laughs> 
So um, we're about at the end of the interview, and I have to say, you made it through without being shot at, because um, you were shot at at the BBC, or at least you were shot and only mildly wounded. Like, what was that about? Do you have any idea what happened? No, we do not know because I just heard somebody across the street on a veranda ranting, like road rage. And all of a sudden I heard some sort of a mild explosion in something like a glowing piece of metal, like a kilo weight of of glowing metal heat hits me at my belt or near my belt. And I thought something at the camera had exploded, but no, and I saw then a, the, the man with a rifle ducking down and disappearing. And uh, I do, did not know because I uh, did not want to call police. Uh, I said to the crew, BBC people, uh, you are frantically now dialing 911. Consider it. We'll spend the next six hours um, uh, filing reports at a police station and we will have a helicopter over us and a SWAT team arriving in five minutes flat. Do we need that? Do you want that? And so we decided we'd just continue shooting, but at a safer place. Were you outside when that happened? Yes, it was outside uh, and you can still see it on YouTube. It's funny because people think, ah, yeah, it was all staged and made up. No, it was not. It was reality. It was the real world. And of course, in a world of uh, uh, fake news and inventions and embellishments and so, uh, people believe uh, that uh, being shot uh, and hit, not seriously, but anyway, that it must have been made up. Or um, having moved the ship over a mountain, that must have been a digital effect and we are only pretending. Now I moved the ship. So um, you have to connect yourself to the real world and then all of a sudden my memoirs become the most natural thing. A man who lived a, a very normal life, with a few things that were exceptional. And I think it's not exceptional to move a ship over a mountain. Every grown-up man should do something like that. Did you go to the emergency room after you were shot? No, uh, because we could see I was bleeding, but I could see it was the bullet went through all my, my leather jacket and the folded-up catalog and all my shirt and T-shirt. Uh, but it did not perforate my abdominal, it did not perforate and go into my abdomen. If it had been inside of me, lodged in my intestines, in that case I would have gone to the emergency room. So, But I, I can distinguish what is serious and what, is, what, what, can, be, what can be taken and tolerated. So I, I do my best and... Uh, uh, and I think in this case, I did my best as well. well. I should hope you would have gone to the emergency room if it penetrated your intestines. Well, I would have gone, sure, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so what's next for you? Well, I just finished another book, uh, The Future of Truth, uh, which will uh, be released uh, next spring, but in its German original. Um, what you have in front of you is a very fine translation of my memoirs but it always takes until it's being translated so it will take about a year and I made also 
two films that are not fully released yet. And I'm working on some poetry. And I'm working on a translation of poetry by a Canadian writer, uh, Ondatje. Um, and, um, well, I'm just plowing on uh, wildly. Uh, Do you ever stop working? Yes, I'm... I have uh, long hours of sleep. I'm fairly lazy. My days of shooting are brief. My hours of writing are brief. I do my tax returns three hours in the morning, then I write three hours memoirs, and uh, I go to the pharmacy or whatever. So, But I write 15 <laughs> pages. It goes fast, and next day another 10, 15 pages. Because it's my life. I have lived it and it's in me. You see, it's not foreign, it's in me. And uh, because of that, I can describe it for you. And you will not be disappointed. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back to our show. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, so did I. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Werner Herzog's new memoir is called Every Man for Himself and God Against All. After we take a short break, Lloyd Schwartz will review new releases of recordings by the late opera star Maria Callas. December marks the centennial of her birth. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Many critics consider soprano Maria Callas the greatest singing actress in the history of opera. She died in 1977 at the age of 53, and this December would mark her 100th birthday. Classical music critic Lord Schwartz says that several new releases celebrate both her singing and her acting. Here's Lord's review. performance at La Scala in 1953, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. The opera was Luigi Carabini's 1798 Medea, a neglected work in which Callas's thrilling and complex performance revived new interest. 
the sorceress Medea has been abandoned by her lover Jason, the father of their two children. In the aria, she's both accusing Jason of cruelty and begging him for pity. Who but Callus was capable of expressing simultaneous extremes of pathos and rage? Both her live and studio performances of Medea are part of a new 135-disc box set just released for her 100th birthday. The set is called La Divina Maria Callas in All Her Roles, which is not 100% accurate since no audio seems to exist for Callas in at least a couple of her earliest roles. But the set includes at least one complete recording of each of the operas she made commercially, as well as live performances of operas and concerts, her famous masterclasses at Juilliard, Blu-rays of her few televised performances, and even alternate takes and working studio sessions released here for the very first time. If you're brand new to the callous phenomenon, this gigantic collection would be one-stop shopping. Another well-timed callous birthday release is a new Blu-ray of her only movie, it's also called Medea and is part of the Criterion Collection's new box set of nine films by the powerful and disturbing Italian director Pier Paolo Pasolini. His 1969 Medea is a very personal, political, visceral, and violent take on the same Euripides tragedy that inspired Carabini's more austere and formal opera. In the film, Callus is not so much a classical heroine as a more primal priestess wallowing in bloody rituals. She doesn't sing a note, and the music here has the unoperatic quality of Middle Eastern and Eastern European folk music. Callus's acting is overwhelming. Even though Medea doesn't speak very much, Callus's eyes alone reveal her profound spirituality, sexual turmoil, motherly affection, and unbridled desire for revenge. When Medea does speak, she has hair-raising things to say. Which brings me to my one major reservation about this movie. Callas and Pasolini evidently loved working together, but for some reason he didn't seem to like the way she spoke Italian, even though she sang most of her operatic roles in Italian, even in operas that were intended to be sung in German or French, like Medea. But in the most widely distributed version of the film, the one in Italian, which is the one in the new Criterion set, Medea's speaking voice is the voice of Rita Savagnone, an actress who dubbed the Italian voices of such English-speaking stars as Vanessa Redgrave, Joan Collins, Whoopi Goldberg, and Liza Minnelli. At least a version of the film exists in which Callas actually dubbed her own voice in English. 
Here's Medea praying desperately to her lost gods. Speak to me, Earth. Speak to me, son. You are disappearing, perhaps never to return again. I can no longer hear what you are saying. And here's Medea, the tender mother, soothing her two young sons just before she's about to murder them. Come. And it's Callus who gets the inexorable final line of the movie in English. Now your fears are nothing! You will understand when you are old! I beg you in the name of the God you hold dear! Please let me touch once more those poor innocent bodies! No! And don't bust again! It's useless! Nothing is possible anymore! As far as I know, the only way to hear the English version is on a British Film Institute DVD, which requires an international DVD player. But what's even more tragic is that Maria Callas didn't make more movies. Lloyd Schwartz reviewed La Divina, Maria Callas and All Her Roles, on the Warner label and the new Blu-ray of Pasolini's film Medea by the Criterion Collection. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, the New Yorker's Jonathan Blitzer talks about the chaos surrounding the next Speaker of the House. We'll also talk about Jim Jordan, who lost his bid as Speaker, but remains the head of the powerful Judiciary Committee and is heading up some controversial investigations. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. <laughs> Fresh Air's executive producer is Yenny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Chaloner directed today's show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research, on, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.